Welcome to Sermons by Brad Tuttle. We are so glad you decided to join us today. We know you're going to be encouraged, inspired, and challenged by this powerful sermon. sermon today is, Who are the elect of God? Has anybody ever read the Bible and seen the word elect? You wonder, who are the elect? So we're going to talk about that today. So turn to Romans chapter 9, and we're going to read verses 6 through 21. Hallelujah. So who are the elect of God? Are you all ready for this? Okay. Romans 9, verses 6 through 21. It says, but it is not as though the word of God has failed, for they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel, nor are they all children because they are Abraham's descendants, but through Isaac your descendants will be named. That is, it is not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of the promise are regarded as descendants. Verse 9, for this is the word of promise. At this time I will come and Sarah shall have a son. And not only this, but there was Rebekah also when she had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac. For though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose, according to, somebody say his choice, his choice would stand not because of works, but because of him who calls. It was said to her, the older will serve the younger, just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Verse 14 says, what shall we say then? There is no injustice with God, is there? He answers himself, may it never be. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I raised you up to demonstrate my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. So then he has mercy on whom he desires and he hardens whom he desires. Verse 19, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault for who resists his will? Verse 20, on the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this, will it? Or does not the potter have a right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? Amen. Thus saith the the word of God. So, the elect of God... It's it's simply those whom God has predestined to salvation. And this topic just, it uh, it, either you love it because you understand the sovereignty of God or it it makes you mad. But God is a sovereign God. The elect of God are those who God has predestined. We're going to get into this. We're we're going to break all this down and flesh it all out. So they're called the elect because there's a concept of choosing here. Um. Throughout history, there's been two main views on the doctrine of election or predestination. 
two main views, so I'm kind of going to teach you today. One view, which we call the prescient view, spelled P-R-E-S-C-I-E-N-T. Prescient or foreknowledge view. Listen, to, listen as I read this. Teaches that God, through his omniscience, does everybody know what omniscience is? God's wisdom. Or that. For, or foreknowledge teaches that God, through his omniscience, knows those who will in the course, this is the first view, knows those who will in the course of time choose of their own free will to place their faith and trust in Jesus Christ for their salvation. On the basis of this divine foreknowledge, God elects these individuals before the foundation of the world. Has anybody noticed anything in that verbiage that it says that they, in, in this view, God knows who will, they believe, if you hold this view, you believe that, that God knows those who will in the course of time choose their own by their own free will um, to place their faith in Christ. The second view is the Augustinian view, which essentially teaches that God not only divinely elects those who will have faith in Jesus Christ, but also divinely elects to grant to these individuals the faith to believe in Christ. So the big difference here is one view says that I have my free will to choose Christ for salvation. The other view says that God divinely elects and chooses to give you the faith to believe in Jesus Christ as your Savior. I'm not going to ask you which view you're in. We're just going to flesh it out. We're going to talk about it a little bit. So well, the first one sounds really good. Well, yeah, man, I get to do what I want to do. I get to choose what I want to choose. The other one sounds like, how can God push that on me? You don't, well, first of all, if you don't want God to push salvation on you, there's a problem there anyway. But, um, so in other words, God's election unto salvation is not based. This is, uh, this is the second view. God's election unto salvation is not based on a foreknowledge of an individual's faith but it's based on the free, sovereign grace of Almighty God. So God elects people, in the second view, to salvation. And this is mind-blowing. So he elects people to salvation, and in time, these people will come to faith in Christ because God has elected them. We fight this as human beings because we want to have our own free will. We, we want to we say, well, it's my choice to choose or it's my choice to reject but we're going to see that in the midst of all this according to the word of god and you've got to flesh out the verbiage and you got to flesh out the words and you got to see what it's really saying that god is a sovereign god in everything that's involved in our life so the difference here boils down to this who has the ultimate choice in salvation god or man god or you so in the first view the prescient view man has control his free will is sovereign and becomes the determining factor in God's election. So when I got saved in my bedroom that night, was that God having predestined me as one of the elect that I then came to salvation then? Or was that night because I chose at that moment to receive Jesus as my Savior? That's the difference. So God can provide a way of salvation through Jesus Christ in the prescient view, but man must choose for himself in order to make salvation real. Ultimately, though, I, it, look, it seems to me like this diminishes the understanding of God's sovereignty because we're leaving this aspect of it to my sovereign will as a, as a human being to make my choice. Um, 
So this puts the creator's provision of salvation at the mercy of the creature. If God wants people in heaven, he has to hope, he has to hope that man will freely choose his way of salvation. It's deep, right? So in reality, the prescient view of election is no view of election at all because it's not God choosing, it's God conforming. He's conforming his will to your will because you decided to get saved. So is God sovereign in the fact that you came to Christ or is he waiting on you to do it and then he just conforms it to what you chose to do? Does everybody understand that? This, in the first view, it's man who's the ultimate chooser. So again, on that night when I got saved, after I'd been in that bar, was that my choice in that bedroom to receive Christ or was it God had already done a work and then it was my time as one of the elect predetermined before the creation of the world, that was my time to come to the saving knowledge of Christ. And I only did it because the Holy Spirit regenerated my heart to now have faith in Christ. Whew. blows my mind okay i'm blowing my own mind those who now this is important those who hold to the prescient view or the foreknowledge view they 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 appeal many times to these passages and i will read these to you romans 8 well you can flip back there if you want flip back to romans 8 we're going to read verses 28 and 30 it says and we know that all things work together for good to those who love god to those who are called according to his purpose we all love that verse right because ultimately it's you know, if we're called to God's purpose, everything, no matter what happens, no matter what tragedy happens, everything's going to work out together for good. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. So from these verses, here's what the prescient view people do who believe that it was my will to choose. It's up to me to choose Christ or not. Since they say, and they take this verse this way, since God predestined those whom he foreknew, it must be that the Lord chooses for salvation those whom he foreknew would believe. So they look at the word foreknew and read into that eisegetically that God must have foreknown, I would believe. The problem with that is it doesn't say those whom God foreknew would believe. You've got to understand what the word foreknew means. Um, so we, in our desire to correctly interpret this scripture, we learn that this, here's what foreknowledge means. Here's what it means when he says foreknew. Any New Testament reference to God's knowledge and foreknowledge of people has to do with him knowing them in an intimate and salvific way. It's not about him knowing that. In other words, when he foreknows them, he sets his love upon them. So if you read it again in, that ver in the way that it's read, for whom he set his love upon, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Not for whom he foreknew would believe, he also predestined. Is that making sense? So the, our, the choice of men and women for salvation is based on his decision to set his love upon them, not his knowledge of what they will do regarding choosing Christ. For whom he foreknew, set his love upon, he also predestined. We're going to flesh all this out in chapter 9. So in the Augustinian view, this is the Pauline view too. This is Paul's view. That's why 
inspired by the Holy Spirit. He wrote these words in the Bible. So in this view, God has control. He is the one who, of his own sovereign will, freely chooses those, those whom he will save. People have a problem with God being a sovereign God because everyone looks around, remember, with our finite mind, and we see all the tragedy, we see people starving to death, we see all the things that are going on, and we're saying, how could a loving God, remember, this is your mind thinking this, how could a loving God let all these things go on? You're not God. You can't, there's some things that we just are not going to understand until we get to heaven and stand before him. We can't determine what goes on in the world by our thinking because it, it has nothing to do with what we think. We are the creature and we cannot question the creator. We are the clay. We can't question the potter or the molder of the clay. There's things that go on that we will never understand. So if you're here and you're one of those who are mad at God because he did this or did that, you're in the wrong. You need to stop that. God is a sovereign God. And if anything else, think about what he did to bring salvation to people. He sent his own son to be brutally, savagely beat to death, to die on a cross so you could come to saving faith in Christ. So the word translated predestined in the scripture referenced above, we heard the word predestined, is from the Greek word proorizo. It carries the meaning of determining beforehand, ordaining, deciding ahead of time. So God has preordained. He's predetermined. He knows what's going to happen. Predestination is God determining certain things to occur ahead of time. What did God determine ahead of time? Well, according to Romans 29 through 30, he predetermined that certain individuals would be conformed to the likeness of his son, and when they were, they'd be called, justified, and glorified. God took care of salvation from the beginning to the end, and it was determined beforehand. Mind-blowing, right? So, essentially, God predetermines that certain individuals will be saved. We're going to deal with this. People are going to think that's unjust. There are numerous scripture verses that refer to believers in Christ being chosen. Matthew 24. You want me to, do you want to write these down or you want me, you want me to go slow with them? Okay. Matthew 24, verses 22 and 31. Can't take all day. Go right fast. Mark 13, verses 20 and 27. Romans 8, 33. And Romans 9, 11. Romans 11, 5 through 7. And Romans 9, 28. Ephesians 1, 11. Colossians 3, 12. 1 Thessalonians 1, 4. There's two S's in that. 1 Timothy 5.21, 2 Timothy 2.10, I forgot I'm recording this, you can just get it off of that, Titus 1.1, 1, 1. 1 Peter 1 verses 1 through 2, 1 Peter 2 verse 9, and 2 Peter 1.10. So the Bible has a lot to say about this, right? Uh, foreknowledge and elect. So he not only elects those whom will, he will save, but also accomplishes when he elects you to salvation, he's already accomplished your salvation. Remember, it says he's, if, if he's elected you, he's called you, justified you, and glorified you. 
It's, it's already done. It's already done. So I, here's what I believe. I believe that God predetermined before the foundations of the world that I was going to be of the elect. I believe the night that I gave my life to Christ, that's the moment that that happened and the Holy Spirit regenerated my heart to faith to believe in Jesus Christ as my Savior. And I, na- and I also, once he did that predetermined beforehand, he had also taken it out to my glorification. So I'm going to get there. No matter what, how much of a toot I act like in between or how much I let the flesh operate in my life in between, I'm going to get there because it's already been established. I'm not going to lose it on the way there. Some of you ought to be, some of you not clapping right now. Because if you're saved, if you're, if, you're, if you're saved and you believe you're one of the elect, then, man, you ought to be thanking God, you know, I'm, I'm there. It's already been established. It's deep, right? So there's objectors to the Augustinian view. Many, there may be objectors in here. Critics have claimed that this view robs man of his free will. Because we are men, we are people, and we want what we want. And I want it to happen like I want it to happen. And that's the way we are. We grow up and we're, we're spoiled kids and we want what we want the way we want it. So people struggle with God being a sovereign God. So there's questions. If God chooses those who will be saved, then what difference does it make for man to believe? Why preach the gospel? Well, because the Bible, in, in all of this, it's been established. God's plan is they have to hear the gospel. So within the aspect, even of them being the elect, there's an aspect where the gospel has to be heard. So... Think, put your mind thinking on that. If God elects according to a sovereign will, then how can we be responsible for our actions? Um, these are all great questions, and they're fair, and they need to be answered. So we're going to go through chapter 9 and try to look at this a little bit. And you'll still have questions when we're done, but I, I think this is important for me to bring things like this to the people that go here. Amen? This is the most in-depth passage dealing with God's sovereignty in the Bible. And what he's going to do, he's going to start it off looking at it from the point of a Jewish person. So it, it flows from Romans 8, which ends with this great pinnacle of praise. Romans 8, 38 and 39 says, For I am convinced that nothing in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So this leads now Paul to consider how a Jew might respond to this statement. And when Jesus came to the lost children of Israel, uh, the early church was largely made up of Jewish people, but the gospel was spreading amongst the Gentiles much faster than the Jews. So now most Jews, because they see the gospel as a stumbling block, 1 Corinthians 1.23, and they rejected Jesus. So this is going to lead the average Jew to wonder if God's plan of election, because they thought it was all just about them being Jewish, has failed, since obviously most Jews reject the message of the gospel. So throughout Romans 9, Paul is going to systematically show that God's sovereign election was been in, has been enforced since the very beginning. So he begins with this crucial statement in verse 6, For not all, are, not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. In other words, not all people of ethnic Israel, those who are descended from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, belong to true Israel, which are the elect of God. Paul shows that God sovereignly chose Isaac over Ishmael and Jacob over Esau. Remember, Jacob I loved or chose, Esau I hated or rejected. So God has always had a, Paul's using this to show that God's always had a sovereign election promise process 
based upon promise and not just on natural descent. It's based upon his promise. So in just in case anyone, Paul answers this question, anyone thinks that God's choosing these guys, you know, one for one and one not for the other, based on faith or good works that they would do in the future, he has in verse 11, which we read, though they, Jacob and Esau, were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of choice or election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. So God calls. It's God's work. It's all God's work. Anybody seeing this? So again, God has always had a sovereign election process based upon promise, not just on natural descent. The word choice in the Greek is eklage. In the context of Scripture, eklage speaks of election. So we're even seeing in this verse, in order that God's purpose of choice or his election. So God foresaw both Esau and Jacob as born in sin, right? We're all born into sin. By nature, it says in Ephesians chapter 2, 3, by nature, children of wrath, even as the rest. So if left to themselves, they would have continued in sin throughout their entire life. If left to themselves, they would have continued in sin through their entire life. But here's what goes beyond our, our thinking. For wise and holy reasons, not made known to us as the clay, God purposed, Greek word prothesis, to change Jacob's heart and to leave Esau to his perverseness. Right? So the commentary from the Expository Dictionary of Bible Word says the Greek word prothesis is particularly significant. The permanent determining element wherever this purpose is concerned is not the works of men, but the will and call of God. If you're really saved in here, remember, you're not saved because you go to church. You're not saved because your mom and dad raised you in church. You're not saved for any of those reasons. You are saved because your heart Something took place in your heart. You came to a place of repentance. Sorrowful for your sins. You then believed on Christ. And that's all God's work happening in your life. Um, you ought to be so excited right now that you're on the right team. And that's why I under, don't understand. I know we all go through stuff, but why aren't people in church who are truly saved, aren't, why aren't we more excited? No matter what goes on in life, why aren't we more excited about this? Why don't we walk in the joy of the Lord? Yeah, the enemy's really good at sucking it out of us. Because even as elect of God, we still have a flesh nature, and he's good at getting in that flesh nature and doing what he can to stir us up, to steal our joy, get us depressed, get us down and discouraged. But understand what God has done in your life. And when you understand fully what God has done in your life, you ought to be rejoicing every day of your life. Amen? Some may say amen. I understood that part. Okay. So at this point, someone might, somebody in here is probably thinking this. They're going to accuse God of acting unjustly. So Paul anticipates this accusation in verse 14. Stating plainly that God is not unjust. He says, what shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? Certainly not. And in verse 15, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. 
God is sovereign over his creation. He's free to choose whom he will choose, and he's free to pass by those whom he will pass by. The creature has no right to accuse the creator of being unjust. The very thought of that just um, was absurd to Paul, and it should be to all of us. We can't question God and why things happen that we think God could have not let happen. Verse 16, he says, so then, whenever you see the words, the phrase, so then, that's a term of conclusion. So then, it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. The question comes, did you come to God because you wanted to come to God? Are you saved because you chose to come to God? You wouldn't, the Bible tells us clearly that you wouldn't even have wanted to unless God placed that desire in your heart to want him. You wouldn't even have ever gone that direction. It's not because you actively willed and purposed or resolved to come to God. It's not our will or our effort, but it's God's mercy. It's God's mercy. Is this stuff important to learn? Yeah, it's probably in the greatest, the pinnacle of all the books that Paul wrote, Romans, book of Romans, and is sitting in chapter 9. And he wrote it for a reason. Because he wants his people to understand. God wants his people to understand this. Ephesians 2, chapter, or Ephesians 2, verses 4 and 5 says, But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were, some may say dead, dead in our transgressions, he made us alive together with Christ. And I use this illustration in front of you guys all the time. Remember, they always picture the guy on the surface of the ocean reaching out to the guy with the life preserver, and they, they picture that as salvation. That's not what happened. You were at the bottom of the ocean, on the very bottom of the ocean, and you were drowned, and you were dead, and you were not reaching out to God for anything. And you are saved because God chose to then save you had nothing to do with you saying, I want God. I want, it had nothing to do with you. It was all God. Powerful, huh? Okay, so we enter into salvation and we'll reach the crowning at the goal only because of God's everlasting mercy of God. If you're saved in here, say hallelujah. hallelujah. Man, verse 17, this is the one that throws everybody for a loop and we're almost done. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, there's that Greek word prothesis, I raised you up. See the word purpose? He determined beforehand. So I raised you up to demonstrate my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. He raised him up for a specific divine purpose. Raised up, mean it carries the idea of bringing forward or lifting up. It was used of the rise of historical figures to positions of prominence. So the Lord made clear through Moses that Pharaoh was divinely raised up to serve a divine purpose, a purpose of which I'm sure Pharaoh was not even aware of. God raised him up for a reason. Exodus 7, verses 3 and 4, just write down chapter verse. Exodus 7, 3 through 4 says this, But I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiply my miraculous signs and wonders in Egypt, he will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt, and with mighty acts of judgment, I will bring out my people, the Israelites. And in verse 18, so then he has mercy on whom he desires, and he hardens whom he desires. 
Amplified Version says, so then he has mercy on whomever he wills or chooses, and he hardens or makes stubborn and unyielding the heart of whomever he wills. So then in this verse, we said, so he says, so in verse 18, so then he has mercy on whom he has desires, and he hardens whom he desires. Again, so then is a term of conclusion. So what's Paul concluding here? So from these uh, instances that we quoted, so then on whom he will, he has mercy on whom he will, he hardens. God has mercy on sinners otherwise destined for an eternal separation in hell. And if you're saved, that was you. So then he has mercy on whom he desires. The Greek word desires means not only desire, but it means executive will, active volition, and purpose. So he has mercy on whom he actively purposes to have mercy on. Um, so he either shows mercy or he shows or he hardens and it all depends upon God's will all according to the will of God so the general conclusion drawn from all the apostles said in the three preceding verses in denying that God was unrighteous and loving Jacob and hating Esau he concludes that it was God's own sovereign pleasure that is the rule both with respect to those whom he receives and those whom he rejects. This is all according to God's own sovereign pleasure. He pardons one and he hardens another. Without reference, hear this, to anything but his own sovereign will in accordance with his infinite wisdom, holiness, and justice. He pardons one he hardens another without reference to anything but his own sovereign will. God is not chargeable ever with injustice, and especially in electing some and not others, because none of us deserve anything anyway. We don't deserve. We are born sinners. We are born hating God. We are born with the wrath of God against us. We are born with the wrath of God against us. That's the bad news. But the good news is that Jesus made a way for people to be saved. So God's not chargeable with any injustice. As he delivers Israel, Egypt was in bondage. He delivered Israel to exhibit his sovereign mercy on those whom he desires. He raised up and destroyed Pharaoh to exhibit the corollary truth that he hardens those whom he desires. Remember, Pharaoh was a sinner. Moses was a sinner. Moses was a Jew. Pharaoh was a Gentile. But both of them were sinners. Both were murderers, right? And both witnessed God's miracles. Yet Moses was redeemed and Pharaoh was not. It's not me to try to figure out why. Moses was redeemed and Pharaoh was not but they were both sinners from the beginning, right? God raised up Pharaoh in order to reveal his own glory and power, and God had mercy on Moses in order to use him to deliver his people Israel. Amen? So Moses received God's mercy and compassion because that was God's will. And I wrote this in real big font. The Lord's work is sovereign, and he acts entirely according to his own will to accomplish his own purposes his own purposes not my purposes his own purposes according to his will the problem with the church today is we diminish God 
You ever heard somebody call God big man or you know, big guy upstairs? Talk about a diminished view of God. God is beyond everything. Everything. He spoke everything into existence. So the issue was not to presume rights of either men, but rather the sovereign will of God. Pharaoh knew God. He knew, but he suppressed the truth. And he didn't want God. The point is that God ordained to redeem a remnant of humanity to salvation. Not everybody will be saved. We don't preach universalism here. Not everybody will be saved. Again, Paul constantly talks about there is an elect. There is a remnant. That's why when I do evangelism and people come to the altar, they raise their hands, they pray the prayer, and even if they're crying for three hours, it doesn't mean they're saved. I don't know if they're of the elect. I just did my job to present the gospel. Only God knows all that. So Paul says in Romans 8, 29 through 30, we're coming to a close, for those whom he foreknew and also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brethren and those whom he predestined those who and those whom he predestined, yea, he also called right on, and those whom he called, he also justified glory to God, and those he justified, he also glorified. I already have a seat at the table. There's a seat already with my name in front of it at the table. I may falter on the way there, and I may do dumb stuff on the way there, but there's a seat at the table. And it's been predetermined beforehand that I would get there. Mm, man, that's awesome. Amen. That's the reason to get your shout on right there. So in closing, the idea of a person, hear this very clearly, wanting to be saved, but being unable to due to not being one of the elect is foreign, absolutely foreign to the Bible. Because no one seeks after God's plan of salvation on his own accord. Romans 3, verses 10 through 18. Write that down. No one seeks after God's plan of salvation on his own accord. Romans 3, 10 through 18. Those without Christ are blind to their need for salvation. Write this down. 2 Corinthians 4, 4. Without Christ, we are blind for our need to salvation. Before I got saved, I used to go to nativity scenes with beer bottles in my hand. I'd be drunk looking at a plastic baby in a manger and go, what is this all about? This means nothing to me. But then one night, my eyes were opened because it was my time. God had elected me. He chose that. And then that time, that, that was going to happen. That night it happened. My eyes were open, and I was gloriously saved. So I went from darkness, not believing, knowing anything, caring about any of it, to all of a sudden, bam, and my life was transformed and changed. And I got busy with the things of God. So the not, not uh, being blind to our need for salvation, it only changes when God begins to draw a person to himself. It's God who opens the eyes. It's God who enlightens the minds. It's God who enlightens our minds to the need for Christ as our Savior. When I was sitting in that bar in the window shade, this was the Holy Spirit doing his work, sitting in a bar in a bar stool. Boom, my eyes open up and go, what am I doing here? Why am I involved in this? Get in my car, drive home, struggle, 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 punch wall, punch wall, mad, angry. Ah, what's going on? 
walk into my bedroom, fall on my knees, remember the gospel that was preached to me five years earlier. I pray that because the Holy Spirit had done his work. He had regenerated my heart at that moment. I placed my faith in Christ as my Savior. I wasn't taught these things that I'm teaching you for years and years and years, but when I finally, when I began to really read these things and understand them, it made me more, it made me more excited about what God did in my life than ever before because I realized, wow, God predetermined this before the foundations of the world. So a person cannot repent or change their mind about sin unless God grants repentance. Acts 11, 18. You cannot repent unless God grants you that repentance. Acts eleven eighteen. And as you notice, this is all scripture backed. So the important thing to remember is that no one deserves to be saved. Anybody hear that? You got to get this foundational understanding that no one deserves to be saved. We are born sinners separated from God by our sin. No one deserves. And God gets such a bad rap without people realizing what he did. What he did to make it possible. The Bible says we have all sinned, Romans 3.23. We are all worthy of eternal punishment, Romans 6.23. So as a result, God would be perfectly just in, allow, in allowing all of us to spend an eternity in hell. He would be perfectly just to allow all of us to spend eternity in hell because we are sinners separated from him and we, his, and we don't want him. So God's choosing to be gracious to some is not unfair to the others. No one deserves anything from God. Therefore, no one can object if he does not receive anything from God. I'll give you this quick illustration and we're done. An illustration of this would be a man randomly handing out money to five people in a crowd of 20. Would the 15 people who did not receive the money be upset? Probably so. Do they have a right to be upset? No, they do not. Why? Because the man did not know, owe anyone money. He simply decided to be gracious to some. So Romans 11.33 proclaims this about all of you that are struggling with this and you're trying to figure everything out because you have a really high IQ and you're trying to reason all this stuff out. Romans 11.33 says, Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out you'll never figure him out you'll never have every question answered but it's all the work of god from the beginning he does it all and that makes me so excited that no matter what goes on in my life there's one thing that no one can take away from me there's one thing the devil can never take away from me is my understanding that God set his love upon me and saved me. And that's why, through all the things I've gone through in my life, I have never taken a step backwards. No matter what's gone on, I have always pressed through the muck because my understanding of what God did in my life always drives me forward. And it should do that for all of us.
if you know what God did for you, it should drive you through the muck and the mud of life. No matter what comes your way, you should be driving through because you know what God did for you. And ultimately, you know where you're going to be. Thank you for joining us at Sermons by Brad Tuttle. We pray this sermon blessed you, encouraged you, inspired you, and challenged you in your walk with Christ. Thank you for being with us. Come back and visit us anytime. God bless you.